Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Infinite God as Truly Intimate. For Trinity Sunday, it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 3rd, 2012. Among Western churches, both Protestant and Catholic, the first Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. It's a day when we celebrate the triune nature of the one true God. Many liturgies this Sunday will include the 6th century Athanasian Creed, which reads that, quote, we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. We don't know who wrote this Athanasian Creed, but it's careful to make both affirmations and denials. Christians affirm the unity and co-equality of the Godhead. In other words, we worship and glorify not only the Father, but also the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we deny both tritheism, that we worship three gods, and subordinationism, that somehow the Son or the Spirit are subordinate to the Father. <clears throat> Whereas most Protestants and Catholics affirm the Athanasian Creed, it never enjoyed widespread use in Eastern Orthodoxy. This is strange in a sense because Eastern Orthodox theologians like the Cappadocian Fathers of the 4th century, Basil, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and their friend Gregory Nazianzus, all made major contributions to the doctrine of the Trinity. When Eastern Orthodox believers celebrate the Trinity, they start in a different place than their Western cousins. And it's a good place to start when worshiping God. Western theology tends towards intellectual abstraction, whereas Eastern theology emphasizes adoration of the mystery. It's always been wary of the inadequacies of human language, the limitations of the human mind, and the infinity of God. The Desert Father and intellectual Evagrius of Pontus, for example, who spent the last 16 years of his life among unlettered Coptic peasants in the harsh Egyptian desert, he once wrote, God cannot be grasped by the mind. If he could be grasped, he would not be God. And similarly, the Syrian monk and bishop John of Damascus from the 8th century he writes, It is plain, then, that there is a God, but what he is in his essence and nature is absolutely incomprehensible and unknowable. God, then, is infinite and incomprehensible, and all that is comprehensible about him is his incomprehensibility. Evagrius and John of Damascus emphasize the radical transcendence of the infinite God. 
Both Old Testament readings this week reinforce this truth. Isaiah had a vision. The psalmist heard a voice. Isaiah feared death when he saw the holy God high and exalted. The seraphs covered their faces. Earthquakes shook the foundations, and thick smoke filled the temple. Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In Psalm 29, which mentions the voice of the Lord seven times. According to the psalmist, God's voice thunders over mighty waters, splinters the cedars, twists the oaks, and rips the bark off a tree. He compares God's voice to a bolt of lightning. <clears throat> but God's radical transcendence is only part of what we celebrate on Trinity Sunday. God is surely infinite, but both the Gospel and Epistle remind us that he's also intimate. Paul contrasts two ways of relating to God. We don't relate to God as a slave who fears a master, but as a child who feels safe with a father. Romans 8.15 Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word used by Jesus that means something like Papa. The word is used only three times in the New Testament and conveys a shocking sense of human intimacy with the divine infinite. It's a word that little children first learned to speak, first learning to speak, used for their father and that Jesus himself used to speak to God in Mark 14, 36. And in the Gospel of John for this week, God loves the world, says Jesus, and longs to save the world and not condemn it. <clears throat> I like how Bartholomew I the ecumenical patriarch and spiritual leader over all the Eastern Orthodox churches, captures both God's transcendence and imminence in his book called Encountering the Mystery. He writes, God is unknowable and yet is profoundly known. God is invisible and yet is personally accessible. God is distant and yet as intensely present. The infinite God thus becomes truly intimate in relating to the world. Some time ago, a reader from Vermont sent me the poem Immersion by Denise Levertov, 1923 to 1997. Denise Levertov was born in Britain and moved to the United States when she was 25. In 1989, during her 11 years as a professor at Stanford University, she converted to Christianity. Her book of 38 poems, The Stream and the Sapphire, traces her journey from agnosticism to faith. 
Immersion is only one of many of her poems that explores our human intimacy with the divine infinite. Listen to the poem. There is anger abroad in the world, a numb thunder because of God's silence. But how naive to keep wanting words we could speak ourselves. English, Urdu, Tagalog, the French of Tours, the French of Haiti. Yes, that was one way omnipotence chose to address us. Hebrew, Aramaic, or whatever the patriarchs chose in their turn to call what they heard. Moses demanded the word, spoken and written. But perfect freedom assured other ways of God's speech. God is surely patiently trying to immerse us in a different language. Events of grace, horrifying scrolls of history, and, in, and the unearned retrieval of blessings lost forever. The poor grass returning after drought, timid, persistent. God's abstention is only from human dialects. The holy voice utters its woe and glory in myriad musics, in signs and portents. Our own words are for us to speak, a way to ask and to answer. Sometimes it feels like God abstains from the world in silence. But maybe that's because we expect him to conform to our own limited language. Yes, says Levertov, sometimes God speaks directly and simply, like he did when he spoke to Moses face to face. But God is also perfectly free, she reminds us. And so he has other waves of speech, myriad musics. I like to think that on Trinity Sunday in particular, as Levertov puts it, God is surely patiently trying to immerse us in a different language, events of grace, horrifying scrolls of history even, and the unearned retrieval of blessings lost forever. For books this week, I review a title by Christian Smith, How to Go from Being a Good Evangelical to a Committed Catholic in 95 Difficult Steps. Cascade Books, 2011, 205 pages. Christian Smith, <coughs> a sociologist at Notre Dame, was born and raised an evangelical. But on April 24, 2010, he and his wife converted to, to Catholicism. This book tries to show how and why American evangelicals should follow his lead, and it does so with the zeal of a new convert. His title, of course, is a clever jab at Luther's 95 Theses, and it points to a serious charge. In Smith's view, the Reformation is over, and people who insist on keeping the Reformation going 
are acting foolishly. This, likewise, is a clever jab at his Notre Dame colleague, the historian Mark Knoll, who published a book called Is the Reformation Over? that assessed Catholic evangelical dialogue. In this view, Protestants bear the brunt of ecclesiastical blame. Smith writes, the Reformation does not call for celebration. It calls for sorrow, repentance, and reconciliation. Christian Smith's appeal is built around Thomas Kuhn's famous book about how paradigm shifts occur when science accumulates too many anomalies for which reigning theories cannot account. He raises numerous issues that, in his mind, evangelicalism cannot account for as well as Catholicism. Some of his points are well taken, like the issue of inerrancy or the presence of the true church for 1,500 years before Protestantism even existed. Others sound like special pleading, like his take on the Assumption of Mary and her Immaculate Conception, both of which were invoked by papal infallibility in the 19th century. Convinced Protestants might find his take on separated brethren as too optimistic, presumptuous, and even patronizing, nor is he above his own proof texting, a favorite evangelical practice, of course, as with his thesis number 66 on transubstantiation. Many readers will doubt his sense of a positive future regarding women in Catholicism or clerical celibacy. Complaints about boring sermons, lame liturgy, or fallen pastors can be argued both ways. Smith writes in an informal, personal, and unapologetic style. He's a well-informed, if opinionated, scholar, and he knows that almost all the issues he raises are complicated and require considerable study. This book alone is hardly sufficient, as he would acknowledge. He makes a few passing references to Eastern Orthodoxy, which has also attracted converts from evangelicalism, even the scholars Richard Swinburne and Yaroslav Pelikan. There's one mention of Oriental or Syriac believers, which is to say that the quest for Christian unity goes far beyond Catholic and evangelical rapprochement. Smith's book is an articulate and welcomed addition to the growing literature on evangelical Catholic dialogue, but I'm not sure its strident polemic will attract many new converts. The author is Christian Smith. The title, How to Go from Being a Good Evangelical to a Committed Catholic in 95 Difficult Steps. For film this week, we have a guest review by my daughter, Megan Clendenin. She reviews The Hunger Games from 2012 the Hunger Games, based on Suzanne Collins's best-selling novel series, explores a dystopian future of a violence and oppression. As punishment for a past civil war, the capital forces the 12 districts to participate in the annual Hunger Games. 
In The Hunger Games, two children, a boy and a girl, are drafted into a gladiator fight to the death. The winner earns extra food for their district. Exploiting our growing obsession with reality television, the entire nation is forced to watch the games as a form of entertainment. Thrown into a wilderness arena, tributes must battle the elements, hidden booby traps, and each other. The movie centers on Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence, a capable teenage girl who volunteers as tribute for the Hunger Games in place of her young sister. With the entire nation's eyes on her, she fights for survival while struggling with the morality of becoming a killer. Joss Hutcherson stars as Peta Millark, her fellow tribute from District 12, and also love interest. Strategy, tragedy, and excitement ensue in this blockbuster hit. The film condenses the novel into two and a half hours and tones down the gore for a PG-13 audience. Grossing hundreds of millions of dollars on opening weekend, The Hunger Games is a must-see. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, who lived from 1865 to 1939. The poem is simply called Politics. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has both read and thought, and maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. William Butler Yeats, Politics. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 3rd, 2012, Trinity Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.